you'd like to open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13, we'll be picking up in there in just a moment, continuing our view of the parables of Jesus. The first two parables that we have looked at uh, in this study, um, I think after reading them, the parable of the, the sower and the parable of the wheat and the tares, thinking about Jesus' disciples as Jesus spoke these words to him, I think it's easy for us to uh, make the assumption, and maybe rightfully so, that this would have been very discouraging parables that they heard. When you stop and think about what Jesus had to say in the parable of the sower, four types of soils are described, but yet only one of them was going to actually be that good soil that heard the word and, and put it to use in its life. In the parable of the wheat and the tares, they learned that Satan was going to be doing his best to try and undermine and, and fight against their efforts and was going to be successful in some regards in doing so. Now, let me ask you, if, if someone came to you and said, I, I would really like for you to sell this product for me. I'd like for you to go into all the world and try to convince people that this product is necessary to their lives, it's important, and they should buy it. But only 25% of them are actually going to listen, actually going to purchase the product. And all the while, you're going to have an enemy out there that's doing everything he can to defeat your efforts to sell that. I'll imagine you're not going to be too thrilled, too excited to, to give a great portion of your life to com uh, committing it to sell that product. And yet, that's, that's kind of what the disciples have just heard. Christ has told them that, that they, are, they are going to be like this, uh, like this man who goes out into the garden and he spreads his seed and only about 25%. In the, in, in, in the parable that he uses, is going to use that. You're going to have an enemy, an adversary. But as early as the 4th century, commentators started to recognize that the next two parables were probably meant to do just the opposite for the, for the disciples. While these first two, two parables may have been discouraging, the next two parables that Jesus is going to talk about are meant to embolden and to, to boister the hopes that a disciple has in following the, the, the king. In Matthew 13, verses 31 through 32, we read about the mustard seed parable. And in Matthew 13, 33, we read about the parable of the leaven. Both of these appear to describe the kingdom and its destiny for remarkable growth. And I think it's, it's easy for us to say, let's, let's just go ahead and lump both of these parables into one lesson. But in, in an effort to try and give both of them their own thought, we're just going to look at one this evening, and that is the parable of the mustard seed. And as we do, hopefully we can appreciate the point that this parable is making. Uh, in doing that, maybe it would help to get just a little bit of background information uh, on exactly the, the items that Jesus uses to describe the kingdom in this parable. He talks about the mustard seed and the plant that it produces. Now, there's been some confusion in the past because when you talk to uh, people who have familiarity with mustard, they understand that comes not from a tree. It comes from a, a, a bush. Uh, there is, while there are some trees out there known as mustard trees, they're not very common, and they're not common in the area that Jesus is talking about. So what is Jesus talking about when he gets to this parable and he starts talking about this mustard seed that grows into a mighty tree? Well, even though we wouldn't classify it as a tree, the mustard bush grows to be 10, 15, to even 20 foot tall. Some of these bushes can grow as, be as large as 30 feet, although it's very rare. 
In the fall, these br the branches of the mustard tree become very, very rigid. And when they do so, it's not uncommon for them to become a house for, for, uh, for all sorts of different types of wildlife, including birds and, and small animals. But yet, all of this comes from a seed that is of seeds that are planted in gardens, primarily one of the very smallest. And this is part of the reason that this parable is used in such a manner. It is proverbial in that it is frequently used to describe things that are small in the beginning and yet grow to exorbitant heights. Jesus also uses it again over in Matthew chapter 17 and verse 20 when he talks about someone's faith and describing their faith even as small as a mustard seed can do great things. So let's read the parable together. Matthew chapter 13 verses 31 and 32, and see the lesson that Jesus is teaching His disciples and us also about things which start small but have the ability to grow large. Another parable He put forth to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches." When we step back and look at the life of Jesus and the beginnings of the church, one thing that becomes clear is that the kingdom of heaven, the church, would have a small beginning. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, and the very first verse of this chapter, speaking of the, the offspring of Jesse, look what it says there. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Jesus is describing this mighty tree in, in Matthew chapter 13 in this parable. He describes this mighty tree that, that all the, the birds of the air will be able to rest upon. And yet, when Isaiah talks about the coming Messiah, he doesn't speak in terms of this, this great, magnificent Tree. You know, when you think of the trees of the Old Testament, when you thought of mighty, you thought of the cedars of Lebanon. That's why they went to build the temple. They went into Lebanon to get these great and mighty cedars. And yet, whenever Isaiah describes the Messiah, he describes him as not a great and mighty tree, but as a branch or as a, a root or a stem that comes forth. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel is describing a dream to Nebuchadnezzar. And in verse 35 he starts talking about the kingdom of heaven. He says that then the iron and the clay and the bronze and silver and gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. When we go back and look at the beginning of that, of, of that dream, Nebuchadnezzar had this dream of this mighty statue of, with a gold head and a silver chest, bronze thighs and legs, and then iron uh, lower legs and iron and clay feet. And he says, while he was looking at the statue, this, this stone. I find it interesting that he talks about a stone. He doesn't say this, this boulder, this asteroid, this comet, this, this mountain. He says a stone, hewn without hands, brings down this mighty statue. And then as he continued on there in 35, he talks about how it would become a great mountain. In verse 44 of the same chapter, he says, in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So the, in, the, in the Old Testament prophecy, when he, 
when they prophesy about the Messiah and about the kingdom, over and over again, what we see are images that depict something that is small, something that is, that is uh, what many would consider to be maybe even weak, a stone. What can a stone do compared to this mighty statue? And yet, significant growth is, is, consider, is uh, expected to come out of them. One commentator, a man by the name of R.C. Trench, wrote in his book, Notes on the Parables of Our Lord. He said, The Son of Man grew up in a despised province. He did not appear in public until his 30th year, then taught for two or three years in neighboring villages and occasionally at Jerusalem. He made a few converts, chiefly among the poor and the unlearned, and then falling into the hands of his enemies, died the shameful death of the cross. Such and so slight was the commencement of the universal kingdom of God. And when you think about what he wrote, he's right. Christ, other than a, a very short appearance at the beginning of his life that we read about in their trip to the temple, Christ doesn't show on the scene until he's much older. And the three or so years that he spends in ministry, he, he's not described as someone who, who had this mass amount of fame and fortune. He spent most of his time going around to these small towns that people would neglect, that people didn't want to even be a part of. And the people that did come to him were people like fishermen, people who were poor, people who were blind and hungry. Not the, the high up, not the, 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 we might say, the highfalutin society, not the people that were well-to-do. He didn't attract that. And so, yes, in a worldly standpoint, whenever you stood back and you look at Jesus' life, you see the mustard seed parable. You see the small, humble, and, and, and very misgiving beginnings that say this is not going to amount to much. But when we continue on in the parable, we're reminded of the great growth that would come. The tremendous growth would, would, would go against those humble beginnings. Just like in Daniel's uh, interpretation of the vision, that small stone that seems like it wouldn't be able to do so much, not only after it crushes this great statue, but it becomes a mighty mountain that, all the earth, that could fill the whole earth. The growth of the church in the first century confirms Jesus' parable here as true. The disciples grew in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 42, to over 3,000 in a matter of hours. In one day, a handful, a small group of disciples just increased at an alarmingly huge rate. And if you go over to Acts chapter 4, we see that that's not a, a one-time thing. In Acts chapter 4 and in verse 4, we continue reading about the church there in Jerusalem. It says, However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So in this short period of time, you have what started as this, this small story. A carpenter. A man with that has no real backing by the, by the Pharisees or by anyone that's high up in the religious world of the Jews, a man who has done nothing but make the Pharisees and the other Jewish people mad and angry with his teaching, but yet all of the poor and the, the broken have seen him for what he was. But yet it, doesn't, it, it kind of is just a blip on a radar. He was here for a couple of years and then he was dead. But following that, the growth that the church experienced when his helper that he promised came to the disciples and they began to preach his word, it has this explosive rate. 
the numbers of the disciples multiply and multiply. In fact, when we get to Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, we're still talking about Jerusalem. There it says the word of God spread and the numbers of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. But then when you get to Acts chapter 9, verse 31, we have left Jerusalem and we're going out into all the world. The churches throughout Judea, Galilee, Samaria had peace and were edified. Walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. In fact, years later, they would, we would see in Acts chapter 21, verse 20, and Paul, when Paul comes to Jerusalem, we find that some translations say myriads of believers. Others just say thousands of believers. This is a huge number. And then even today, as we step back, we can see the growth and the influence that the kingdom of heaven has in the lives of believers around the world. All of this came, all of this started at a, from a very small place, from, from just one man. Granted, the man was the son of God. But from one man came forth more and more and added to it until eventually when they talk about people of the way, they say that's those people that have turned the world on its ear. Their growth was exponential and the benefit was exponential as well. In the parable, Jesus spoke about how birds of the air would come and would nest in the branches of this tree that would spring forth from this small seed. Now, what Jesus meant by that has been mistaken from times that those who seek refuge in the church are going to find the many blessings that they want in their life. They'll find the, the, the things that they want to have. They'll, they'll be fed and they'll, they'll have security. And over and over again, we see throughout the scriptures, Jesus even saying himself that through many trials and temptations, we must enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's going to be difficult. There's going to be times where we are persecuted. There's going to be times when things don't go the way we want them to go. So he's not talking about this physical benefit that comes, although there may be uh, found a physical benefit in being a part of the family of God. But more, or more accurately, we see in Matthew chapter 11, in verse 28 through 30, the rest that the birds of the air have in, in, in this parable. Matthew 11, verse 28 uh, through 30. He says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Paul talked in Romans chapter 14, verse 17, saying the kingdom of heaven is not eating and drinking. It is, it is hope and it is, uh, righteous, it is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Um, one thing that he was indicating there, the kingdom of heaven is not about the physical. It is about the spiritual. And that's what Jesus was telling all those who would hear, that he was come to provide rest for the weary soul. The soul who has been beaten and battered and is ill from sin and is looking for that place of healing and that place of relief. He says the kingdom of heaven will be that for them. And so with this simple parable, Jesus offers encouragement to a small group of disciples who have been following him throughout the, the land of Palestine. They would be a part of that mustard seed that would grow and would bless the world, uh, bless the world immensely. So maybe we look at this and we say, well, then what happened? What about today? The kingdom of heaven continues to grow. It continues to spread out its branches. But does it grow in the same way that it grew then? Can we expect similar growth that, that, like what was witnessed in this first century? 
Well, there's a few things for us to consider. Number one is that in considering growth of the kingdom today, there is the possibility, spiritually, there is the possibility of the same type of growth. What we saw in Matthew chapter 13 over and over again was the seed. And the seed doesn't technically change. The seed is the word of God. In the first parable, the sower went and spread the seed. And it was the word of God falling into the hearts of men, they being the soil. But after in the wheat and the tares, we see after that seed takes root in the soil and it produces good fruit, it's bearing that fruit, that soil becomes a seed in and of itself, but it's still the same seed. It's of its same kind. You don't grow corn and when corn pops up, pare a little piece of corn off, plant that and expect to have a tomato plant. You know what's going to come from it. Whenever we are being influenced by the seed, we are going to be spreading that same word of God that, that brought us to Christ to others. And so we have the same seed of the kingdom. And it is a seed that is incorruptible, according to 1 Peter. Look over 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 23 through uh, 25. There he says, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass, and the grass withers and its flower falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. We have an incorruptible seed, the same seed that they had in the first century. A seed that's capable of producing what God intends. Isaiah talked about that in Isaiah 55 verses 10 and 11, talking about the efficiency of God's word. When God's word goes out, it accomplishes what it set out to do. You see that in creation. Joe did an awesome job talking about that in his class the other night. When God said, let there be light, his word accomplished what it set out to do. That hasn't changed today. So while the first two parables remind us that not everyone is going to accept the will of God, this parable declares the kingdom will grow. So what's needed for it to grow? If the possibility is there, the, the spiritual possibility hasn't changed. The word is the same. The seed is the same. It can't be corrupted. What's needed to have this sort of growth today? Well, one thing that's needed are people. People with vision. People who had a vision that Christ had, that it was expressed in his parables. People who, you know, we sing a song sometimes, uh, not to look at the apple and count its seeds, but to count the apples within a seed. Um, I don't think that's in our songbooks here. But, but that's the mindset that we see in Jesus. That he wasn't looking to, to Peter and saying, that's a rotten apple. I can tell right now that guy's not going to be 100% faithful to me. I can tell right now that's going to be the kind of guy that when things get rough, when things aren't going his way, He's going to look away. He's going to look to something else. And we see that happening over and over again. And you know, if Jesus had the vision that most of us had, when Peter looked away on the Sea of Galilee and began to sink, he'd say, you know what, I'm done with you, Peter. When Peter looked away after, when, when he was taken in the garden and, and began to, to act as, as opposite as he could to the teaching of Jesus so that he wouldn't look like someone who followed him, if Jesus had the vision that many of us have today, we'd say, you know what, I'm done with you, Peter. Yet over and over again, Jesus had a vision. He had a, a, an ability. He looked at Peter and said, I see that there can be great things to come from you. So what did he say to him? He fixes him breakfast and says, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. He had a vision, and we need to have that vision too. We need to look at converting and developing disciples in the same way that Jesus did, and that takes time. 
That means getting dirty. That means getting involved with people's lives. But that's what Jesus was willing to do. We should have that same vision as well. We need people who are willing to put the kingdom of God first in their lives. The seed of the gospel only produces fruits. If we remember, uh, think back to that first parable, the parable of the sower, it only produces fruit in the soil that is good. The soil that is good is one that does not allow the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches and the pleasures of life to choke out the, the ability of that seed to bear fruit. And so we must put the kingdom of God first, as Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 33. And we must also be willing to abide in Christ. In John 15, verses 4 through 5, Jesus talks about, gives the, this, this picture of the vine and the branches. And he talks about our ability to, to work outside of him. He says in verse 4, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. In fact, in verse 8, he would go and say, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. So what did, what did Jesus need in the first century? He needed people that saw like he saw. He needed people that looked at the people around them, looked at the world around them, and saw the potential for people to be those type of people that would glorify God, that would come to him, that would be willing to spend time with them to teach them the word and to try and help the word be cultivated in their hearts. He needed people that would put the kingdom of God above everything else. Like those disciples who were fishermen and said they laid their nets, they laid everything aside and they came to him and they, they, they served him. He was their master. And he needed people that were going to abide within him, that were going to live by his authority and were going to work under his control. The potential that we see then for the kingdom's amazing growth rests, it rests in the efforts of the person and it rests in the mighty power of the king that it belongs to. Those who abide in Christ can be used by him to reproduce this remarkable growth in the kingdom illustrated by this parable. You know, there's a marketing scheme, and I, 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 I for one, despise pyramid schemes. Even if it's not a pyramid scheme, if it sounds like a pyramid scheme, I don't want to have anything to do with it. If somebody, a friend comes to you and says, hey, we want you to be a part of this company that we're a part of, and all you got to do is you get a product, and you get some people that sell the product underneath you, and I usually about that time plug my ears. And that's probably not the most wisest thing to do if I maybe could get on some really good opportunity to make, make decent money with something, but I just don't like pyramid scheme type mentality businesses, multi-level structure businesses. But one thing that's interesting in them, something that we can learn from that, is the way that many of them are so successful. They start with a handful of people. And each one of those persons finds somebody to be underneath them and to do what they were doing alongside with them. And so that handful of people multiplies. And each one of those that it multiplies to, they do the same thing. You know, if we applied that same logic to the church, if every single one of us went and found one person that we could have an influence on, that we could help bring to Christ and convert them, we would double in one year. And let's say the next year, everyone from that, from that first effort said, we're going to try again. We would double again and again. And statistically, a group starting with 20 by the end of 25 years would be in the billions. Now, I'm not saying that we need to, to try and 
and put numbers and, and, and if we haven't done this, we've failed. I'm just asking, do we look at the parable of the mustard seed? And do we think that's still possible today? The church can still grow in the manner that Jesus described in the manner that we saw in the first century. I believe it can. And I believe his parable is an encouragement to us to be reminded the power that is in that seed and a reminder that we're, if we're going to be useful to the master, we can be useful to the master by helping to grow his kingdom in whatever talent that we might have in doing that. It's going to be different for each and every one of us. Friends, if that be your desire this afternoon, to help build the kingdom which was given to provide rest for the weary soul. Maybe that weary soul is you tonight. Maybe you've been battling the, the effects of sin and, and you've been striving to do this all too long on your own. We talked about this morning. That's not something we can do by ourselves. It's something that we would like to work together as a family to help every single one of us be that good soil, producing the fruit that the kingdom needs. If we can help you with that, won't you please come forward and let it be known as we stand and sing.